This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. On a cold Monday morning in Dublin, Georgia, this past November, Malik, 11 years old, and Jalia, his five-year-old sister, were walking to their bus stop from their rural home when their neighbor's two pit bulls, who were typically leashed, were unleashed, and ran through a sizable hole in their neighbor's yard and attacked little Jalia. Malik immediately reacted and rushed to the aid of his little sister. He started kicking the dogs until they attacked him, and then he told his little sister to run for it and get help. 27 bites later, he climbed to his own safety using his own fence. Malik has a lot to teach us about loving someone. He didn't need to have an internal dialogue about the nature of love. He didn't need to slow things down, have a Bible study or read a book, and think about love from a metaphysical perspective. He didn't need to wait for a certain emotional response or motivation to kick into action He didn't have to go to Starbucks and open up his moleskin and think about the right loving response in various situations. Malik just jumped into action. He understood that love was not an idea, but action. That love is gritty. It requires tenacity. Love is losing so that someone else wins. Love is decreasing so that someone else increases. Love is fighting so that someone else flourishes. See, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul offers us a downright challenging picture of love. Now think about it. For us, 1 Corinthians 13, we see this in weddings way too often. It's become sweet and sentimental, abstract and fluffy, and we just kind of go, oh, when it's red, and it's beautiful. But in the context of this letter, it's a very different story. When we slow down to reexamine this familiar passage, we find that this fluffy little poem is actually a rebuke an invitation, really a challenge to really evaluate what, re- what love really means. This morning, it's New City's fifth birthday, and we look with great excitement and anticipation what our loving Heavenly Father has in store for our church for years to come. We're about to become two sites, New City Central and downtown, and if our sites are going to make a radical difference in Orlando, what one thing would unleash us to serve and to bless and change the city? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is inviting us to make love the most central thing in our lives. By the way, three challenges that build on each other. Paul is challenging us to own the supremacy of love, 
to own the definition of love and to own the destination of love. Supremacy, definition, destination. Let's begin with Paul's first challenge, to own the supremacy of love. When we look at the history of Corinth and the Corinthian church, it sheds a lot of light on this first challenge. The city of Corinth was destroyed by the Roman Empire in 146 BC. They were a little too standoffish for the Roman Empire's taste. So Julius Caesar put a Roman garrison there over a hundred years later, and between those two dates, nothing happened in that desolate location. But Julius saw a lot of potential in the city. The city was in the middle of its region and had key cities to its north and south and east and west. And so, a hundred years later, the Corinth exploded from nothing. There was no aristocracy or tradition or real history to slow it down. It attracted talented and gifted and hardworking and advanced and self-reliant people, people driven and oriented around success. And this church plant that Paul was writing to was five years old. They were growing and vibrant and had the whole world in front of them. <clears throat> They're the most spiritually gifted church Paul had had the privilege of working with. Now, this may be just me. We might have a few things in common with a church in Corinth. Now, to establish the supremacy of love, Paul right away challenges all that they prize above love right away. In verse 1, he addresses the concept of tongues. This was their preferred outward spiritual gift. If you wanted to advance in this church, you needed to speak in tongues. They prize this spiritual gift over the spiritual fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, Paul highlights prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries and all knowledge. The most valued commodity in Corinth was knowledge, particularly spiritual knowledge. And the mysteries Paul is referring to has to do with God's redemptive purposes, his secrets in human history. In verse 2, Paul highlights faith. This is referring to faith that makes great leaders and local heroes. And the church in Corinth was full of these leaders and preachers who are well-known throughout all of Europe and Asia Minor. In verse 3, Paul highlights, if I give all that I have away. Uh, Referring to, if I give everything I have to the poor. Verse 3, if I deliver my body to be burned. Referring to the faith of martyrdom most likely. Paul is clearly addressing all that they hold dear, all that they're striving for. And in themselves, these are beautiful and good things. But Paul accompanied this list of desires with the word if, every verse. If what? If you have all these amazing things but not have love, again, he says that three times, which means to act lovingly, then no matter how great those things are, I'm a noisy gong referring to the hollow pagan worship of that time. I am nothing, verse 2, and I gain nothing in verse 3. Now, how would you receive this if you were the Corinthian church? What Paul says in these three verses are quite staggering. It's meant to be alarming. Paul's saying you can be the most knowledgeable Christian of the Christian faith and be nothing. You can be the most gifted person in Corinth for the Christian faith and be worthless. And you can be the most faithful person in the Christian faith in this church and get absolutely nothing. The Corinthians may have been the most gifted church in the New Testament era, but as you read this letter cover to cover, they're the most troubled church as well. What counts for Paul? Paul makes it so simply clear. In this passage, it's so familiar to us. He keeps saying, it's love. If you look at the book of Galatians, Paul says it a different way. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts, but counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
And then Jesus, his master and king, puts another way in the book of John. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. For Paul and Jesus, the calling card of every Christian must be love. It is to be the highest goal or aim, and it's the thing that should be most desired. Love is to be supreme and define the Christians the most. What the Corinthians were making primary and supreme was not worth, it was not working for them. Now, real quick, what defines you? What have you made supreme? What do you define by other than love? For people like us in the Corinthian church, it's so much easier to lean into our spiritual gifts, our God-given talents, our capacities, and not God's love and grace. I'm pretty sure when Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, he had this in mind for me. I have a lifelong battle for defining myself by my gifts and not his love and not his grace. And as I had a chance to reflect upon 2012, I realized there I go again. And I love working at this church because it's exposing to me I can't rest in my gifts. I have to rely on God's grace because my gifts are not enough. The question for us all is not whether we make love supreme, but what we've substituted in for love to define us. It might be a great idea for all of us this week, maybe even today, to get get away in community and think about what that which we've made supreme over love, that we might see God change us in his love and grace. Now, as we begin to process Uh, what it means to make love supreme in our lives. We can't help but ask the question, well, then what exactly is love? What am I specifically trying to shoot for, Paul, to make supreme? And Paul's second challenge takes aim at this question. His second challenge is for us to own the definition of love. Now, in verses 4 through 7, Paul cannot be more clear and penetrating. He defines love in the most constructive, concrete, and behavioral terms. He leaves nothing about the concept of love to doubt. Now, this definition falls largely into two sections. Verses 4 through 6, Paul explains love by contrasting it to the current actions of the church in Corinth. I'm sure the Corinthians loved being a foil to what real love is. In the second section, in verse 7, Paul's laid out in most positive, sweeping terms the marks of a loving person. So as we look at this first section, verses 4 through 6, we'll quickly see that love is losing, or said more fully, Love is losing so that someone else wins. Let's begin with verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Patient being passive, forbearing, and full of self-restraint. Kind being active and full of goodness. The Corinthian church clearly had a problem of doing both. As we read their le- Paul's letter to them, there's nothing in them to give an inch in any conflict. The idea of losing to others might, to, so that others might win seemed like a foreign concept to them. Now, We're not that different if you think about it. I can't tell you how many times I've been dragged into a conflict in my role at New City, and both parties are dug in, not wanting to concede anything. The moment one person begins an argument or a statement, the other person, you can just look at them and see the wheels turning. They're already creating their defense or their rebuttal. And I just let this dynamic go on for a little while, and then at some point I just kind of stop and say, all right, why do you have to win? Why can't you just lose? What's wrong with being wrong? Let's try a different tactic. When the other person starts talking, just listen to them. See if you can make their argument better. Look, you can already see the holes. You've been thinking about them for the last 30 minutes. Why not try to fix their arguments for them? Join their side. Become their ally. Make their case better for them and make it for them. And see if there's anything in that that you can own. 
what would happen if you did that? What would happen to you? What would happen to the person you're having the conflict? What would happen to the actual dynamic in the room? I think this is what Paul had in mind. Love is patient and kind. Love is willing to lose so that the other person might win. I wish Paul stopped there, but he goes on in verse 4. Love does not envy or boast. Envy deals with rivalry and competition. It's not wanting to see others win or succeed or get ahead of you. Boast is to call attention to yourself. The Corinthian church, as we look at their letter, was full of quarrels and rivalries. They could not stand seeing other factions and groups getting ahead. And this stands in direct opposition to love. Love is rejoicing with the good things that happen for others. It's seeking the good of the community. Love wants to lose so that others win. Paul goes on in verse 4 and 5. Love is not arrogant or rude. Like the Corinthian church, I've been guilty of being puffed up, arrogant, or even shameful in self-centeredness, which is another way of looking at rude. Arrogance is such a contrast to living for the good of the communities. Because in arrogance, it's the height of relishing your own win at the loss of another. Paul goes on in verse 5. It does not cyst on its own way. Like us, the Corinthians are comfortable with self-gain, self-justification, self-worth. We know what it means to insist on what's best for us and get what we want. This is what we all do quite naturally. But love has us seeking the good of others before ourselves. Love has us losing our way that others may gain their way. Verse 5, love is not irritable or resentful. Irritable being easily angered or provoked. Resentful, uh, no record of wrongdoings. Now we're irritable when we want to win and we, there's a prospect of losing. But Paul's getting in dangerous territory for us all when he uses the word resentful. Keeping a record of wrongs is the best way to control a conflict or another person, is it not? And when you're losing that conversation, what's the best thing you can do? You call an artillery. You just remember what they did wrong the previous week or year or a lifetime. And so when you're losing and you want a surefire way to win the conversation, to turn the tide, you just bring up the past. Love invites us to put away our ammunition because we want the person in front of us to win. Verse 6, it does, love does not rejoice at our wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love will cel- not celebrate the failures or missteps or falls of those we love. While knowing those missteps is helpful information for winners, it's not for losers, because losers or lovers grieve over the losses of their loved ones. Losers or lovers, however, celebrate every act of forgiveness, every act of kindness, every victory gained, every piece of truth lived out in someone else's life, because to love is to see others win. Now, two verses. As we begin to look at this definition of love that Paul is beginning to put out for us, it's more than challenging, it's actually rather exposing. All of us in our relationships, even people we genuinely care for, we tend to love them to get something out of it. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever taken a philosophy class in college or in high school. Uh, at times, Nietzsche and his philosophical offspring, Derrida and Foucault, they kind of make sense. All you have to do is just watch 20 people try to love each other, and you can come up with all their beautiful articles. There, you'll see that love can be blind, and as Nietzsche says, a barbarism, or as Foucault and Derrida say, a power play and manipulation. I can look at my own life and see that I've made love a barbarism and manipulation and a power play. Now, Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher from of old times in London, had this great story that I think illustrates this quite well. 
Once upon a time, there was a king, and he ruled over his land. And he was a wise and well-respected king. And one day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he looked at his carrot, saying, oh, I love my king so much. I just want to give him this carrot. So he took it to the king, and he got an audience before him. and said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. And I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned his heart. And before he left, he said, wait, wait, wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you this extra plot of land next to your land as a gift. I want you to garden it and enjoy all the fruit that the earth provides. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing, celebrating the king's kindness to him. And there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all this. And he was like, man, my oh my. I mean, if this guy can get all that for a carrot, what would happen if I gave the king something so much greater? Now, not a wise nobleman. The next day, he goes to see the king, leading into the audience of the king, a beautiful black stallion. And he bowed low and he said, my Lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present this as a token of my love and respect to you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. And took his horse and simply dismissed him. Now the nobleman was perplexed, and the king could see that and said, Let me explain. That gardener over there was giving me a carrot, but you were giving yourself a horse. What a great story. Think about your relationships for a second. In what ways are you giving yourself a horse? I think I'm giving carrots all the time, but when I think about it, and slow down, I am constantly giving myself a horse. What are you looking for to get out, of, get out of others around you that you love? Worth, acceptance, safety, security, value, success, comfort, control, pleasure. Paul is challenging us with this definition of love to free us from the tyranny of using people and to cultivate us in a capacity to give a carrot or to lose so that others may win. If this definition wasn't hard enough, Paul changes from verses 4 and 6, which can be summarized by losing, to a positive portrayal of love in verse 7 that can be best summarized as fighting, or more fully, love is to fight for someone so they may flourish. Let's jump in verse 7. Love bears all things, which means love covers and puts up with everything. Love fights to pay the cost of every debt so the object of your love moves forward. Love seeks the joy in the development of its object. Think about this. It's a war to cover the cost of everything, isn't it? There's a tremendous personal cost to cover that which you love. And love fights to see that your loved one flourishes at your personal cost. Love loves to pay for things. Verse 7, love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. See, love sees that life is a story and that the life story does not have to be stuck on the present page. Love sees that God is the author of all our stories and has confidence that we are in the loving and powerful and good hands of God, and there's a good ending at that story. Love looks into the future and believes that God's grace and love is powerful enough to handle any present crisis, any present strain or sin and problem. Love risks because love knows that God is on the move and can turn any horrible, bad story on a dime into something beautiful. Love is not overwhelmed in the face of evil and problems that are too big to handle because love knows that he serves one that is bigger 
than any evil or problem. And love perseveres because the one he serves is mighty enough to use all our weaknesses and limitations to write any story that he wishes. And because love believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things, a lover fights. A lover engages a story. A lover will not rest until the object of his love flourishes. A lover will take any risk to win the fight. A lover will take body blows to move the story forward. A lover is at the beck and call of the story writer and will fight for him and do his bidding until, until, uh, until told to do otherwise. If that was not enough, Paul says in verse 8, love never ends. Most simply, it's never defeated. Love persists when rebuffed. Love never gives up. Love is better than any Rocky movie ever made. And there's five of them if you were born after the 80s. If your love fails, then you did not get what you wanted. If your love fails, you did not get what you wanted. You gave up. You didn't get the warmth or the comfort or the prize or the control or the advantage or the intimacy you're looking for, so you moved on. Now just think about verse 7 and a little bit of verse 8. You can feel the tenacity of these words, the grit. Let's put the whole definition together. Love is losing so that someone else might win. Love is fighting that someone else might flourish. If you look at verses 4 through 7, this definition, well, if you look as a checklist for you or a standard for you to measure up to tomorrow or the next big challenge for you to master, you've actually failed to see what Paul's doing in this definition. This definition masters us. It dominates us. Paul is up to something else. Look what he does in verses 4 through 7. He personifies love. Paul is clearly thinking about someone else. Paul is thinking about Jesus. Here is one who covers up, it covers us up and bears all things for us. Here's one who endured the cross and laid down his life for us. Here's one who holds no record of wrong against us, even though he could, and has no shred of resentfulness. Here's one who did not assist on his own way in the garden when he did not want to drink the cup of God's suffering, but he said, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Here's one who gives everything and whose love never ends. Here's one who lost on the cross that his people might win the righteousness that he has in his everlasting life. Here's one that fought sin and death at the cost of his own life that we might flourish in the new heavens and new earth. Here's one that throws us into the ocean of his love and there we will forever be. If you want to love like this, you need to be loved like this. Have you been loved like this? Only Jesus forgives you for failing to love. Only Jesus can heal your desire to give yourself a horse. Only Jesus can transform you into a person that gives your king a carrot. Only Jesus can give you the desire and power to lose and fight. If you never tasted his love, there's people in this room more than willing to help you discover this love, a love that will not let you go. Paul, in this very demanding passage, challenges own the supremacy of love. And then he challenges to own the definition of love. And for us to do both, we must own the last challenge, to own the destination of love. Now, when you look at verses 8 through 13, Paul takes us to the one who gives meaning to love. Right off the bat in verse 8, there's all these things that are passing away, all the things that the Corinthian church cherishes. And then he makes three contrasts to help us to own the destination of God's love. He, own, he invites us to own a new place. 
In that new place, he invites us to own a new relationship. In that new place and new relationship, he invites us to own a new power. Each contrast fills in the beautiful world of love that he calls us to own. So real quickly, let's look at the first contrast, which is verse, found in verses 9 and 10, the new place. In verse 9, he highlights something that we have in part, and in verse 10, something that we partially own. And he contrasts that with verse 10, when perfect comes, when the ultimate comes. What is this ultimate that is to come? Love will be triumphant one day. It will saturate everything into perfection. Love itself will be a new place. There will be no more tears. When love fully comes in perfection, you will experience a whole new world reality that's being prepared for you now. And Paul wants you to begin to take ownership of your new home. Paul wants you to know that your life, that the love you experience is pointing to that greater place. And all our present homes are shadows of that home to come. Yet this contrast points us to even a greater reality. You see, the second contrast in verse 12 points us to a new relationship. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now slow down for a second. What does it mean to talk to someone face to face? Face to face is delight and intimacy. Think about it. When do you talk face to face to someone? I'm not talking like, you know, with distance, but face to face. When are you uncomfortable talking face to face to someone? Who do you enjoy talking face to face with? And what do you typically do when you're face to face with someone? What Paul is saying, what is Paul saying you'll have one day? What do you get to see? Paul is saying that one day you have unfiltered, undiluted access and intimacy to Jesus. That one day you'll see him so clearly that nothing will prevent you from experiencing the full force of his love for you. That one day the love and delight and intimacy that your heart is yearning for will be finally fulfilled. But wait, Paul is saying even more. Yes, you'll see him face to face in unfiltered ways then, but now we can see him even if through a mirror. We have a relationship. We can taste this love that defines us. We can share in that intimacy now. That which we've been chasing after in all our pursuits, we get to see now. This contrast takes us, bleeds us into the final contrast. The third contrast is this new dynamic or power. Again, verse 11, there's a child and childish ways being contrasted with being a man. Again, verse 12, there's something we know in part that's being contrasted with being fully known. Now pay attention here. Please don't get lost in the grammar. I did for a while looking at this. Paul is fully known, past tense, already done. The lover of his soul already knows us fully. And one day we shall fully know him. But Paul says, now I know in part. Maybe not fully, but we can know and be satisfied in God's love. Paul is inviting us to no longer be children who live by childish ways, but he's inviting us, challenging us to be adults who take every opportunity given them to see their Savior and to know his love. When you see the face of Jesus, Only then are you free to lose. Who cares if you lose an argument or any situation because you've already won. And since you've already won in Christ, you want others to win as well. What are you waiting for? Enjoy this power. When you know the love of Jesus, only then will you fight. Jesus has fought for you and won. You will flourish with him forever. Who cares if you lose? How can you not fight that others flourish with you. What are you waiting for? There's a new power for you to enjoy. 
Are you taking advantage of all that Jesus has given you to see him? Have you thrown yourself at the task of owning this new place, this new relationship, and new power that he gives you right now? Is it your life's ambition to know this love and to see this lover, and have you gone after it with reckless abandon? Friends, Paul is challenged this morning to own the supremacy of love, to own the definition of love, and to own the destination of love. It's the only thing that remains. Love is the only thing that remains. If we do this, New City Downtown, if we do this, New City Central, I think we're going to have a blast this year. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we, we don't know how to love. We, we confess that we are people that loves to win, that hates to fight, and we give ourselves horses all the time. Father, we beg you, to be, help us to see the face of Jesus, to help us to see our new home waiting for us, and help us to give ourselves the task of seeing him and knowing his love, that we might be liberated to lose and to fight and to decrease that others may increase, that you may receive glory and that Orlando might be full of your love. We pray this in your blessed name, Jesus. Amen.